Hey guys, I'm your host, Mimi Brown, and you're listening to Becoming Dope. Our guest today is one of the few people in America who can go by one name, Omarosa. Her book, Unhinged, an insider's account of the Trump White House, is a number one New York Times bestseller. In it, she describes her time at the White House as the former assistant to President Trump. She's joining me today on Becoming Dope to talk about how she became so dope and her journey <laughs> along the way. Thank you for being here. I am so glad to be here, Mimi, and I'm excited to tell you how I became so dope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start from the beginning because I don't know, maybe people know, but you're from Youngstown, Ohio. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. I grew up in the Westlake Projects. Um, and I mention that not because I'm just repping for all the public housing, but because I think that there's a unique experience in America when you grow up in public housing that kind of molds and shapes who you are. In my case, I grew up in the first housing project and the oldest housing projects in the United States, oh, wow. and that's Westlake Projects. Really? So what was that experience like growing up? Um, you know, my mother worked really hard to make sure that no matter where we lived, whether we were living in the projects or living on Fifth Avenue, that she made wherever we was an incredible home. Mm -hmm. And so um, she made the projects feel homely. I mean, I don't know how to ex express mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Gratitude to her because um, in spite of the environment we were in, I was enveloped by love. Mm-hmm. And did that, growing up there, did that have anything to do with you and your political aspirations going forward? Well, you know, I talk about in Unhinged how um, at 11 years old, I met Jesse Jackson. My my pastor, uh, Reverend Ross, took us to Idur Park, and Jesse Jackson was speaking there, mm -hmm. and he gave a speech, I am somebody. <laughs> I am somebody. I may be poor. I may be on welfare. I may live in the projects, but I am somebody. And I thought that he was speaking directly to me. Right. And so that was a very transformative moment for me. And so I went back to the projects like, yeah, I might live here, but I am somebody. So I was always surrounded by people who clearly had a message for me that it's not yeah. where you're from, but it's where you're going. Yeah. And so I always focused on my goal of getting out of the projects and making something of myself. Um, you also campaigned a little bit for Reverend Jesse Jackson. I did. Time. Well, I was a volunteer, volunteer. so I was. Yeah, you know, okay. I was too young to be on 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 the campaign, but I was fervent. I mean, I was. I had never seen um, an African American man standing in such a powerful position, and when he gave his speech at the Democratic convention and it was on television, I'm like, oh, I shook his hand. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I talked to him. He he saw me, mm -hmm. and um, I remember after the convention. Um, there was about two months between then and the election, and I remember thinking, I, I want this. I want him to become the nominee, you mm -hmm. know. And so we volunteered, we we canvassed and all that, and you know, clearly, he didn't. But yeah, that experience has stayed with me even to this day. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that had anything to do with how your life turned out, like that experience as a young girl? I think that all of it mm -hmm. um, contributed to, you know, this incredible journey. But truly, it's Christ who is the author and finisher of my faith. And he has quite a, a sense of humor because I've had some unexpected twists and turns along the way. But um, I'm here as a testimony that I am equipped mm -hmm. for whether it's, you know, showing up on Capitol Hill or the White House or Howard. Um, that H -U. I can <laughs> hate you, you know, <laughs> that... Um, 
I can persevere through any situation. But I have to say that Ohio is very political. Yeah. Um, they call it a battleground state for a reason. Yeah. And in fact, I think something like 13 or 14 presidents have come from Ohio. Yeah. And so you're in you're you're surrounded by people who are constantly talking about issues that impact people across this country, but they call Ohio the heartland for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so I picked up on that political energy because my uncle also was a labor organizer. And so going to a protest rally at a young age wasn't unusual for me. Mm -hmm. So um, when I did, you know, make it to, once I graduated from Central State and I made it to Howard, which is just 3.7 miles away from the White House, um, there there was just no question that if I could see it, I could be it. I knew I was going to end up working in the White House some way, somehow. I was going to work there. And so I've had a unique opportunity to work there not once but twice for two U.S. presidents advising uh, those presidents on issues that impact the world. Speaking of that, because I was going to say many people might think that Trump was your first time (laughs) at the White House, but you actually worked for Gore and then for Clinton. Yeah, I came out of Howard and I was working um, as a volunteer at the DNC okay. at night. Uh-huh. And I had an opportunity to work with a woman named uh, Doris Crenshaw. And she says, you know, we, you should come and work at the White. You know, no, no, she asked me specifically, what are you going to do after you graduate from mm-hmm. Howard? And I said, I'm not really sure. I may go back to Ohio. You know, I had political aspirations at that point. She said, well, I might have a job for you. And that job happened to be working in Gore's office. And then, of course, I stayed there for a year, and then I went over and worked for Clinton's office. So I had two appointments in the mm-hmm. White House, and um, it was it was great it, to be so young yeah. and to have a chance to work in the most powerful office in the world was profoundly, profoundly transformative. You know, it's funny because what you just said, how she asked you, well, what do you plan to do after graduation? <laughs> You know, that's the same question you asked me. <laughs> what do you plan to do after graduation? And I have no idea. But they don't have the context that I okay. was your professor. <laughs> yes, that is true. So going back just a little bit. So I went to Howard. Omarosa was my professor at Howard. It was comms. It, it like was comm, like comm 101. Comms. Something. <laughs> Basic communication. Basic communications. <laughs> and, of course, I was her favorite. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just some reason like I I we you I just took to you you know I think at the time you were very um into pageants I was always into beauty pageants yeah. <laughs> and you tried to get me to do a few pageants I did Miss DC Miss you weren't DC. down you weren't down I was it. not down but at the time also I was afraid of my own shadow too so I was a little like oh I don't think I can do it looking back I probably would have done them you would have been I, Miss Universe I would have listened okay <laughs> um so, yeah, so Omarosa was my professor, and um, after that, we kind of just clicked for a while, right? Yeah, but, you know, Mimi, it, talking about becoming dope, even on um, campus, and, and I told Dr. James this, yeah. there was a sparkle. You had it, and, and everybody could see that you had it, but you couldn't see couldn't. that you had it. <laughs> so that's what's fascinating about your journey is that you've always had this humility and even as we sit here and you know celebrating the success of your award-winning podcast, I think that it's interesting that you still have that same mm. humility. And I think that that will always carry you further than than anything in life. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I, um, you know, which is exactly what I was getting ready to say. You called me in D.C. and you asked me what I wanted to do or what was I doing? And I said, hmm, I don't know, because I didn't know. 
And you said, well, why don't you come to L.A.? I literally packed my bags, and two weeks later, I was here <laughs> in, LA. in L.A., and I've been here ever since. <laughs> I won't say how many years that was ago, but it was a while. And so, um, you know, whatever journey that I've been on, whatever, you know, I've experienced here in L.A., it, I thank you, though, because... I probably would still be in D.C. working, you know, I don't know, for the government. I'm honored to have a little piece of your story, but the truth of the matter is that you have a very strong vision for your own life and a strong constitution. And I think that when we talk about dopeness and the people who have been extremely successful in life, they know who they are. Yeah. You know, they they don't quite know what what life entails, but they know that they are going somewhere. Yeah. And so I'm glad to have had a small piece. But I've watched you and I've had a ch- You know, anytime I fly in for a press tour and I'm like, Mimi is doing it. <laughs> and and that's fantastic to see that um, you found your way. Thank you. You found your way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So getting back to your story. This is a straight up kumbaya. It really is. <laughs> it's a love fest. Kumbaya. I love it. Um, okay, so let's get back. because <laughs> We could rename this as two HU girls, two bisons. No, okay. okay. <laughs> we sure could. Um so, yes, we talked about why, you know, I came to L.A. It was because you were on The Apprentice. Um, you had just finished taping. And I came because you were so busy. And I was like, oh, I'm going to help you. So let's talk about reality TV mm-hmm. a little bit. I like to call it unscripted television. Unscripted television. Like, there's not a whole lot of reality. <laughs> in reality. So let's talk about <laughs> unscripted television. Um, what would you do? You think that it had a, a negative or positive um, effect on your career? Um, there is no question that it had a positive mm-hmm. um, impact on my career. And I think that unscripted television gives personalities like myself the freedom to be me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got on The Apprentice at a time when reality was still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And I was selected out of a quarter of a million people trying to get on the show. And they saw something in me that allowed me a platform so that I could speak to people around the world. I've been to so many countries. I've looked in the faces of so many young women, and I've had an opportunity to impact their lives. And all of that started because of unscripted television. And so I will never say anything negative in terms of its impact on my ability to go global Mm -hmm. with my brand, with my name, and uh, with the powerful message that I have about perseverance. Mm -hmm. So yes, I speak very highly and positive of reality TV. I think oftentimes, and I think you can appreciate this, Mimi, uh, there are a couple of shows that will give the entire industry a bad name. Yeah. And um, I've been fortunate enough not to be on those shows. Mm -hmm. I've been on a a show that was about professional development, Mm -hmm. about the business world. Um, And so, you know, I take the good and the bad and keep moving. But reality TV, it really did change my life. It did. It did. It did. Um, So speaking of reality TV, a lot of times, especially on The Apprentice, you were labeled as the villain. Um, Is that an accurate description of you? Well, you've been in corporate America for a decade. And I think as an African-American woman who (laughs) is outspoken and confident, you get called worse things than a villain (laughs) when you carry yourself in that way. And I think that any of your listeners could describe so many situations where we as black women have had to make ourselves small so that other people can feel big. 
And so whenever I hear those labels, realize what I hear really behind that name calling mm-hmm. is someone who lacks confidence mm-hmm. and who do not know how to deal with a strong, bold, mm-hmm. proud African-American woman. And so I'm unapologetically um, Omarosa all day, every day. And with that comes the fact that people will misunderstand you, underestimate you, try to push you around and walk over you, but that's not going to change my focus or my journey. Where does that confidence come from? (laughs) Uh, My mama. (laughs) There's no profound response. Mm -hmm. My my mother, if you've ever met her, then you know know that she... I do. My mother could literally come in this building, and I'm talking about the entire building, and by the time we get in the car, we'll have met so many people, have so many stories, such so many lives, and, um, and have made friends because she has that gift. And so my mother has always taught me to um, carry myself in a certain way um, and that I'm not below or beneath anyone but God and to keep God as the head of my life. And if you carry those lessons into any situation, it's hard to play small. Yeah. And in fact, some of the criticism that I hear when people watch me on television is that I refused to be the, the cleaning lady, the mammy, the whatever shuck and drive role that mm-hmm. traditionally they've tried to box African-Americans in on television. They had never seen an Omarosa before. Ever. You know, I sat in a boardroom where I was the only African-American woman competing for a million-dollar opportunity to change my life. Mm -hmm. And I was not going to hand it to the other people and make it easy for them. If they wanted that million dollars like I did, they were going to have to fight for it. And so oftentimes when people see that you're not going to just hand over opportunities and opinions and and your life journey to them, that's when the name-calling starts. Mm -hmm. So I've been able to pull peel back those layers of insecurities in those individuals and it has nothing to do with me because I know who I am. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your book, Unhinged. What was the motivation for writing the book? Well, this is my third book. My first book was mm-hmm. called The Bitch Switch, Learning How to Turn It On and Turn It Off. And I have to tell you a little backstory, story, Mimi. The book, as I wrote it, was never going to be called The Bitch Switch. It was a, it was a, a, a woman's empowerment book for women in corporate America. And um, my publisher mm-hmm. was, a, a, was a bit of a bully. And I didn't know the business back then. And I signed this incredible deal. And I took this big advance. But I didn't have control. Mm. I didn't have any kind of creative control over the book. Mm-hmm. And so this incredible woman's empower book, empowerment book that I was going to call How to Get the Corner Office or something like that yeah. that he thought was boring, he called the bitch switch because I referred to the bitch switch in the third chapter of the book. So that was my first book. Okay. My second book, I did a book with my mother after my brother was killed, and my mother wanted a way to kind of work through her grief, and she's an artist. And so we did a book called Art My Way, Mama Rosa's Guide to Living a Vibrant Life, and all of the pieces were um, dedicated to my brother and to how to overcome grief. And I enjoyed that project because it was an outlet for both of us and very cathartic. Mm-hmm. And then my third book, of course, Unhinged, came out of my unique experience of being Uh, friends with the President of the United States, um, having known Donald Trump since 2003, and this incredible journey from the boardrooms on Fifth Avenue of Trump Tower all the way to the Oval Office. And people wanted to know, how does that happen? Um, And so I wanted to kind of pull back the curtain of what it's like to be on Air Force One or in the Situation Room or in the Oval Office 
or in the the president's private office where he has advisors sitting around him debating whether or not he's going to start war. And so people wanted to know what that was like. And I shared my experience and it debuted at number one on the New York Times bestselling list, sellers list. And like I said, this is my third book and uh, I'm incredibly proud of the project, but more importantly, how it's touched so many people's lives and given them the courage to step up and to speak out and to do it in a way that was a bit dramatic. (laughs) But I can't imagine how many people are in their workplaces now and they don't, they work for oppressive bosses. Yeah. And it's their word against, one word against theirs. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, everybody says, oh, that didn't happen. Or Mm -hmm. you're imagining things or whatever. And Mm -hmm. you have to find a way to empower yourself. And so that's what Unhinged is about. Um, So when you released Unhinged, did you know that it was going to be, well, you had to know it was going to be a bombshell and extremely controversial? I knew it was going to be a bombshell when days before the release, the president unleashed his entire legal team on me to try to stop the publishing of the book. Mm -hmm. He went after um, my publisher. He went to Simon & Schuster. They wrote letters threatening that if the book were released, they would take legal action, which they did. Um, And of course, they came after me personally to try to stop the release of the book. They threatened news organizations that put me on air not to air um, the story. So I knew days before the release of the book that we were onto something because the president and his team were trying to silence me. Now, you don't silence um, lies. You know, you silence the truth. And actually, I think that a lot of that action and his tweets, of course, helped to catapult the book into the national spotlight. Absolutely, because you wanted to read it. You wanted to know what was in it. You also wanted to to know why was he trying to stop stop it. it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. I mean, I have to ask, because I felt like at the moment when the book was released, you had the entire world in the palm of your hand. (laughs) Everybody wanted to know what you were going to release next in regards to your recordings. They weren't sure what you had, what you were going to say. What was that like? Um, You know, at times there was a little apprehension because when the president unleashes his venom on you, his followers come for you. And so at the time that I was on this press tour, I was also getting all these death threats. I can imagine. Now, I'm from the project, so you're going to have to say (laughs) a little more than I want to kill you to get me afraid, you know. But when they started being specific about hotels and and Mm -hmm. stations and studios and my home and my family, that's when it became alarming. But um, I also took some, some a, a couple of pages out of Trump's book. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was all about this bravado and this pomp and circumstances. I'm gonna make an announcement. That announcement is gonna be Friday and it's gonna be the greatest announcement in the world. My book is gonna be the greatest book in the world. <laughs> my stories are gonna be the stories you've never heard from anybody in the universe. Right. You know? So I took a lot of that bravado, but I had the goods to back it up. Mm-hmm. So I didn't just put out like he does the bravado and there's nothing to back it up. I had, as we call it in the business, receipts. Receipts. (laughs) You definitely had receipts. Um, Let me ask you this, um, because I know when you worked in the White House, you went to work for Trump. There was a lot of black people who were calling you a sellout. Mm. Um, How... 
did that make you feel? It, it's not really what they call you. It's what you answer to. Absolutely. And so those are folks who have never had the courage to get in the arena. It's easy to sit on the sideline in the cheap seats throwing allegations and labels, but to actually get into the arena and be the only African-American woman in the senior staff overseeing the entire administration's response to African-American policies and issues that impact our lives. Um, they didn't have the vision that sometimes God places you in uncomfortable positions mm -hmm. in order to be a change agent. But I knew the call that was on my life, and I don't need them to validate it. I think about the word where we, where the Bible talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, mm -hmm. three men of color mm -hmm. who were in the Bible working for the government. Mm -hmm. And do you know why they put them in the furnace? Because they were working for a government official they didn't believe in. And when they started to speak out, they threw them in the furnace. Mm -hmm. Those are people who don't know the word. Mm -hmm. They worked in an oppressive administration, and as a result, they had to call on the Lord to deliver them. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I went through. And so the names are meant, they're, they're meant to kind of paralyze you. Yeah. And these are, these are names that are thrown at you by people who sit behind screens and monitors and do absolutely nothing. I think what's more dangerous than going into a situation where I was the only African-American woman um, and try to make change, mm -hmm. what's more dangerous is sitting back and doing absolutely nothing, right? So you can call me whatever you want. But doing nothing mm -hmm. while this country is going through probably the, one of the most divisive periods in our, in our recent history, I think that that's an indictment towards them, not against me. Mm -hmm. Do you think the perception has changed now? Yes, I think now, having two years um, between when it happened, and also now black people calling me saying, there's nobody on the inside, and I need assistance with my friend who needs a pardon, or mm -hmm. this school that needs funding, or what's happening in our inner cities, and there's nobody to fight for criminal justice reform, you know? We always need a voice. Mm -hmm. We always need an advocate. I don't believe that we should be in a boat that does not have life, life rafts or life jackets, mm -hmm. right? That's just, that's just basic. And so there's this big ship, mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's no life raft on it. There's no, no one looking out to save us. And so I think we've learned a lesson, I hope so, through my, through my experience, mm -hmm. that we always have to have an advocate in every case. Speaking of um, the election, um, let's do some uh, uh, politics for dummies. Can you explain really quick the difference between what a caucus is, what a primary is, why it's important? Um, thank you for asking, because I, I think watching the first two races in Iowa and in New Hampshire, it caused me a great deal of concern because it is, um, and I'm not using ignorance in a negative way, I'm mm -hmm. just saying it's just pure ignorance that we watch the process and we comment on it without understanding fully the process. A caucus is just a group of people who get together and say, this caucus here, number one, we're voting for Bernie. You're going to caucus on that side of the room, and we're going to vote. And because these are two early races, they think that they have such a significant impact. As we saw this year right. with the Iowa caucuses, which was a complete and total disaster for the Democratic Party. And I'm hoping I'm hoping that the significance of Iowa is diminished after what we saw happen. And I believe that it's going to be a broker convention. It's going to be the most dramatic convention we've seen since the 70s. Why do you say that it's going to be the most brokered convention? <laughs> 
if uh, the doctor here is running, if best friend is running, if Tyler's running, right? And all of us have our followings and we have an equal amount of delegates getting to the convention and then you get to the floor and you go old school and now you have a contentious battle on the floor for who will become the Democratic nominee. And let me tell you something, I want front row seats to that <laughs> to that convention. I'm an independent, so there's no reason for me to be at the Democratic convention, but I will be there because I think that it will be historical. So with that being said, because you're an independent, I was going to ask you, um, was there anybody in the race going forward that has caught your attention? Well, I have to look back a bit because mm-hmm. the, the candidate that I was most interested in is no longer in the race, and that was Senator Kamala Harris okay. of California. Um, and mo- mainly because she spoke to my issues. I always tell people to vote their interest. Mm-hmm. You know, vote. You don't have to vote for necessarily a candidate, but vote for the candidate who is going to help improve your community, your schools, your churches, you know, mm-hmm. your, your environment. That's, I mean, and Kamala was speaking to my issues. And, um, and so I was sad to see her leave the race. And um, now I have really resolved to see who becomes the nominee. I'm not going to get involved prior to that, on both sides, and see if the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee are speaking to the issues that are most important to me. Mm-hmm. And I am what they consider the most powerful voting block in this country, and that's swing voters and independents. Mm-hmm. That's who they spend all their money on, and they're going to have to drop some big dollars to help me clear the way and decide who I'm going to cast my vote for. And there's 32% of us in this country who are also independents who they are going to have to work really, really hard to come up with a, a clear and decisive winner. So do you think um, Donald Trump will be defeated in 2020? It depends on who the nominee is. It, it, there has to be a nominee who has a clear message. And I'll give you my secret formula for deciding who ultimately is the most formidable candidate. Okay. And I call it the five M's. First, it's the med- the man, the candidate, and that's kind of sexist, but in this alliteration, it's an M. So it's the candidate, M, the man, the money, the message, the media, and the momentum. The person who has all of those things in alignment will become president of the United States. So let's take a look. Who has the most money? Who's able to get momentum? You know, who has the media completely enthralled whose message is resounding with the American people and the momentum if you look at that little formula you will always choose the winner and that's the assessment that I use to decide who will ultimately become the winner that's very interesting (laughs) um okay so switching gears really quick um we talked a little bit about your journey and you know how you became Omarosa Mm -hmm. um what would you say your rock bottom moment was? Uh, it would have to have been um, very early in my life, which was the murder of my father, because mm-hmm. I was a daddy's girl. And um, when your identity is so tied into having loving parents, my beautiful mother, strong, bold, my you know handsome father, yeah. and then all of a sudden, as a little girl, he snatched from you in a very you know horrendous way. And so that rock bottom, thank God I experienced it so young so that I could learn from it and persevere. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that really would be that moment in my life where I was just like, I don't, I don't know how I live without my father. Yeah. But I have learned to carry on and to press through that tragedy 
and to make something of myself. And I believe that my father would be very proud of the life that I've built for my family and for myself. You've actually experienced a lot of loss. I have. Your yes. father, your brother, your sister. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you dealt with all of that? Well, f- first of all, in this life, the, the word tells us that, you know, you're going to experience loss. And Paul tells us that this life is a race mm-hmm. and it's how you deal with all of the tragedies and the trials and tribulations. But the word that he says that carries me through everything is the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so I've been able to get through every one of those situations mm-hmm. because Christ has smiled upon me mm-hmm. and has carried me through those situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and what's the one thing you want people to know about you that they may not know? I think the most important thing that anyone could know is that I, I live my life a model that um, Martin Luther King actually said. He says that everybody can be great because everyone can serve. And I have really dedicated my life to a life of service. And that's why I answered the call to ministry. That's why I work with the homeless and at-risk youth. That's why I commit so much of my time to my family because I believe that greatness comes from serving and being a voice to those who have no voice and fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. And that's truly, I think, the message that people should know, that my life, and all that I do really, really is to honor God and to advance his kingdom. Love that. And lastly, the name of this podcast is Becoming Dope. Mm-hmm. Do you, Omarosa, consider yourself dope? <laughs> I'm the dopest. chicka What? And why do you consider yourself dope? Because there's no one else like me. I am the one and only Omarosa Oni Manigault Newman. And that's a powerful place to be. I don't copy anyone. In fact, when God made the mode, he broke it. There's none after and there will be no others in the future. I am Omarosa and I am dope. There you have it. Omarosa is dope. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. And I'm so proud of you. I I say it privately, but I want to say publicly that I am so incredibly, incredibly proud of what you've done with your life. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I love you so much. And Mm -hmm. thank you for coming. And I'm going to let you go so you can go get some lunch. (laughs) Keep being dope. (laughs) Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of Becoming Dope. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or on our website, becomingdopepodcast.com.